Flaps Extended. A few weeks ago, 4 million people tuned in to watch Channel 4 crash a plane on purpose. At 2,500 feet, I'm just going to take two steps and straight on out like I'm diving into a swimming pool. Quite an air blast. We'll be doing 130 knots. If I had my arms out, I could dislocate a shoulder quite easily. It's not every day you, you get to be the last man on board at 727 that it's going to crash in the next two and a half minutes. And it's one of the reasons I also accepted the job, because it's pretty darn exciting. The show was called The Plane Crash, and it was the brainchild of Jeff Dean. And Jeff joins us now. Jeff, it was an amazing programme, a really audacious, crazy idea. Did it come about in a moment of madness? Well, it's even worse than that. It was also fuelled by two bottles of Pinot Grigio. I was having lunch with uh, David Glover, who commissioned science programmes at Channel 4, and my background is science broadcasting. And we were trying to think of something that would combine the spectacular in terms of visual um, television with the, the intellectual. So we wanted a bit of content. And uh, and I went through a number of, of different ideas, and David sort of went home and home and home and home and home. And it got to the point where I, I said to him, you're not going to commission anything for me, David, are you? Unless it's as spectacular as dropping an elephant off the Zambezi Bridge on a parachute. And he said, well, if it had scientific validity, I would certainly look at that. <laughs> Is that the next one? Is that the sequel? <laughs> well, well, it may be. It may be. So, so, so encouraged by that, I went away and started thinking about big, big science stunts and came up with a list of about, uh, about 10. And, um, and top of the list was, uh, was something to do with big aeroplanes. So if you like, one jumbo led to another. So what, just out of interest, what was second on the list? Shooting down an orbiting satellite. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Really good. Third, third on the list was shaking a four-story building to bits. <laughs> you just like breaking things, don't you, Jeff? That's what oh, it is. Oh, yes. And, yeah. and, and, and you did up. spectacularly well, let, let's be honest. I mean, it, it's one of those things. It's it's great to have, you know, as, as with all these things, have a couple of drinks, come up with an amazing idea. How did you go from the amazing idea to actually making it happen. How long did it take? Well, it took a while. And I have to say, I was, I was shocked to get the call uh, from David when he said, we'd like to take this a bit further. And I thought, oh my word, what have I done? Um, so, so I knew then that I was, was going to have to pull it off. But uh, the, the next stage in that game, which is usually the most difficult, turned out to be comparatively easy. Uh, the, the next stage is, is trying to raise the money. And of course, it was going to be a big budget. Not only did, did we have to buy a plane, as you know, even old broken down planes are not exactly cheap. Um, we had to find somewhere to do the thing. We had to work out how to do cameras. We had to um, work out how we were going to get some real science out of it. So it wasn't going to be cheap, and I thought it was going to be really problematic. But I went off to a conference in uh, in Florence, the World Congress of Science Producers, and um, and within two one-sentence pitches, I had acquired two other co-production partners. So uh, I think it was an idea that was waiting to happen. So we got um, ProSieben from Germany, and uh, at that stage, National Geographic from the States. And with those three, on board then it looked like we would probably have just about enough money to do it and what was so, the budget do you mind telling us well the budget at that stage don't forget this is back in 2009 um was uh, was a little bit shy of two million dollars now by the time we'd finished the thing that had risen to the best part of three million pounds um and that was four years uh, in the making so a, a lot of that went in just keeping things going it also turns out to be remarkably difficult to ensure a plane to crash it 
Yeah, well, I was, that was my next question, was when you started going to all the, the people that you needed to go to, i.e. insurance and, and all the different people who would help you make this happen, what was their reaction when you, when you told them that, what the plan was? Well, again, the, the insurance that, that I assumed was going to be a really big problem, again, it looked like we'd solved that one very, very early in the game. And the quote that came in was, was not, uh, you know, well, it, it seemed to be remarkably good. It was uh, $12,000 US because the, the, the broker said, well, after all, all you're going to do is crash the blasted thing. You don't want uh, hull insurance there's going to be no passengers on board. It's, it's going not to like third-party a... fire and theft, is well, it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been, been a bit like that. I mean, the, the, ma- the major part of that would have, would have been um, public liability. Yeah. But since we're crashing it in the middle of a desert and there's no um, um, sense of habitation within, um, well, actually, the best part of 50 miles and you know, the amount of fuel we had on there, there's no way the plane was going to get that far, even if it got away from the remote control and so on, then that seemed to us to be quite, uh, quite reasonable. And the uh, production management team went back and they checked and they checked and they checked and that seemed to be okay. But then we ran into what was to prove a real uh, time uh, waster. Uh, well, time waster is being being slightly rude, but we ran up against the FAA in the states um, because um, just to backtrack a second, the the plane that we found eventually was was in Oklahoma and um, it had nine hours left on the engines, which is why we were able to pick it up for a, a pretty realistic price. But as well as that, it had very well documented uh, maintenance records, so we knew the thing was uh, potentially going to be able to fly, um, and we didn't need many more. Hours than that uh, on, on the engines as long as we weren't going to take it very far so the idea then was that we were going to crash it in California at uh, uh, a lake bed called Superior Salt which is um, just south of, uh, of Edwards Air Force Base and, um, and China Lake uh, and the, uh, the, the American end of the production who um, had looked into this for us had in principle uh, agreement from the FAA but then it seemed to get stuck in the FAA's bureaucracy and it wandered its way up the chain of command eventually ending up in Washington and the people in Washington um, fell prey to some sort of institutional paralysis in the sense that they couldn't decide whether they wanted to do it or not. And anyway, to cut a very long story short, that went on for a very, very long time, um, years in fact, and it got to the point where we thought we were going to be in real difficulty with this. So what happened next? Well, what, what happened next was, was we, we looked um, essentially at how far away we could take the thing uh, within the, the parameters of, of the engine life um, and without having to do a really, really major maintenance on the plane. And it turned out that we could get it uh, to a radius that included a very, very nice dried up lake bed in northern Mexico, uh, Laguna Saluda, as you will have seen on the uh, dried up lake it means you know a lake of health and we thought well it's worth a try um you know other uh, aviation authorities have different attitudes to this we we know that um mexico has been uh, been the, the host of all sorts of uh, of aerial uh, stunts of, uh, including the uh, casino royal you know the uh, the marchetti mm. that chases the uh, dc3 yeah, yeah. and that was filmed over, over northern mexico so we knew that they were very sympathetic to these sorts of things so we approached the the dgac the mexican um, civil aviation authority and they were very very positive and uh, they're trying to grow their aerospace industry they um, want to bring you know, business there it also ticked all sorts of other boxes so you know, it's film friendly um, you're very close to Los Angeles and San Diego so you can buy and film equipment if mm. you need it um, it's comparatively economical to, to work there it's not as cheap as it used to be but uh, you know you get a lot of money things for your, your bucks there so everything came together there the, the the downside of it was that they said we're not going to give you an open-ended permit to do this obviously you know we don't want you coming back in 10 years and saying oh but you said we've got a plane we want to crash now so we had a strictly limited um, time scale on it which took us to the the end of April this year and um, having got that notice we had to pull out absolutely every stop you can imagine to get everything ready and we were right up to the, the wire 48 hours well, yeah I mean the doc- 
documentary show, didn't it? It was all it was yeah, all quite touch and go, wasn't it, towards the end? And that that then that wasn't a you know a television artificial deadline. That really was the case. That if mm. we hadn't cracked it in the, those last couple of days, and we just couldn't get it ready any quicker than that. So the, the things you know, it takes time to get aeroplanes and scientists and so on. The thing we wondered, Jeff, when when we watched it, we had we had me and Mark had this conversation afterwards. What what did Boeing and what did what do the airline industry think of this? Because it, it seems remarkable that. With cars, they crash test, test them regularly, but it's never happened with an aircraft. Uh, we, we've all, everyone we've spoken to is really surprised that it's never been done with an aircraft. Well, I know you showed in the documentary that NASA tried it and worryingly mucked it up, but it just what what did they think of it? What, what's the airline industry's uh, take on it being? Well, we we didn't go too near to them um, for all sorts of reasons. It being uh, America, litigation is never far from people's minds. Not to say for one instant that, that Boeing or whoever else would have tried to stop us doing this. I don't think they would have, but I don't think they were a bit like the FAA. They couldn't be too enthusiastic about it um, because you know questions start to get asked why haven't you done it in fact I'm sure those questions will now start start to be asked uh, why they haven't done it before and I, I think there's there's probably a, a pretty um, you know innocent reason for it uh, as John Hansman who was in the film professor of aeronautics at uh, MIT said one of the things about aeroplanes is that they're built out of metal and we know an enormous amount about the way metal behaves when it's subjected to all sorts of stresses. So we know how it bends, we know how malleable it is, we know how ductile it is, we know what its strength is, we know how plastic it is. So you can pretty well predict what a metal structure is going to do uh, from the computer models. So we took that very much on board and, and we said, well, okay, um, what do the models predict? And we can actually, uh, well, as you saw in, in, in the film, then, then one of the things that planes are designed around is, is they, they have predictions in their structures based on those models so we knew that the, the underwing landing gear was meant to come off because if it doesn't come off then the struts go through the wings the fuel tanks get punctured you get a fire um, and that behaved absolutely as it was meant to do so they've clearly got the the strength of the the, the, the fuse bolt the pin the metal pin that holds the uh, the landing gear on absolutely right so it just sheared off beautifully uh, went round the back banged into seat 24a or something of that sort on the window didn't break the window so from that point of view i think their their models are, are really pretty good and uh, i think we can have great confidence that, that these guys know what they're doing now the one note of caution i would sound about that of course is that the next generation of planes are, are going to be not entirely metal and when the composites come along then we don't know all that much about it and in fact you probably would have seen that the uh, the FAA did require Boeing to drop a whole fuselage section of the Dreamliner mm. um, in a in yeah. a test that, that that had never been done um, before on any of the the generation I think 737 up don't quote me on that as they say um, but uh, it's certainly not not regular that people will even drop large sections of uh, of large passenger jet fuselages to see what happens to them I think we're going to have to go through that process now so I think we're going to be seeing a lot more flight testing going on now jeff the, the plane that you crashed was a 727 yeah which came into service in the early 60s right would you do this again with a, a different aircraft, maybe a bigger or more or more modern airliner? Well, I'd love to do it with a bigger and more modern one. The The main reason we ended up with a 727, in fact, I, I was very keen on a, getting a Lockheed 1011 at the beginning um, because they, they really are built like tanks. And it was in the days when Lockheed was uh, building to military specs. And those are strong aeroplanes. Um, also, it's a wide-body jet and it uh, would have been, I think, no more or less ideal for us. And we even found one that, that we could have bought within the budget. But then, and I'm sure you guys know this already but it was news to me it turns out that the um the flaps and the control surfaces in the tail are uh, weighted down with depleted uranium oh, oh yes yeah. yeah you don't want to be crashing one of those <laughs> well well again it's 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 a slight 
it's a peculiar thing. People hear the word uranium, they think, oh, we're all going to die. But actually, depleted uranium is, is not fissile or radioactive in the sense that, uh, that uranium-238 is or, or one of those other big fissile materials. So it has to be dealt with properly. It's got to be disposed of properly, but it's not, um, not dangerous in that sense. But it turned out that it would have cost us an enormous amount to have it removed uh, in, a, in a safe fashion. Um, and at the same time, we were starting to look around and think, well, actually, the other thing we've got to think about, and, and maybe we've been a, a little bit optimistic about this, is how do we get the pilots out? Because, again, one of the things that NASA test in 84 did was that they, they took the plane off under remote control. And the, the broken wing guys, the, uh, the, the test pilots who we got to do the, uh, the flying for us, the real flying, they said, you can halve your problems um, with the remote control system on this plane if you take it off under manned command. Mm. Because during takeoff, as you guys know, you're both pilots, you've got to trim the surfaces, you've got to adjust the throttles, you've got to get the thing up in the air. Doing that by remote control turns out to be very, very difficult. Mm. So the, 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 the solution to that we came up with was, well, let's get it up in the air with people on, on board let's get them out of the plane and then let's crash it on remote control because actually on remote control crashing we're going to crash it <laughs> yeah, yeah. well it doesn't really matter does it, it doesn't really matter you know as long as it crashes well i mean actually you say it doesn't matter but it, it was kind of important that it, it crashed in a way that was survivable were you happy with the final crash because you did come up slightly short didn't you you were about a kilometer short of the runway were, were you happy with it as a result did you miss any bits well from a science point of view it didn't matter um, the, from a filming point of view, then, then again, we had to make a lot of compromises um, for it, uh, again, for insurance reasons. So some of the cameras we were using there, the really high speed ones, are fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to buy. And you can't insure those if they're within a certain distance of, a, of, a, of something you know, unpleasant happening. You can do them for stunts and so on, but they've got to be under strictly controlled conditions. So we knew we weren't going to be able to put cameras right up alongside where the plane crashed. As it was, we had a long line of them something about 400 meters uh, meters long on both sides of the uh, of the runway that we'd marked out and we thought that was going to be the best chance we had of, of getting the, those sorts of shots we also had a helicopter with a high-speed camera in front of two cameras on the thing we had lots of cameras inside the uh, the plane um, we had other cameras longer distance cameras that uh, that meant that would would be pretty much guaranteed of getting shots of some sort the, the one shot that I really wanted to and this is characteristic of of when you come back and you look at a film and you think how does it compare with what I thought it was going to be like when I had the idea the one shot I had really firmly in my mind was this great big plane on the ground coming towards me in slow motion with smoke billowing out of the back of it and bits falling off it and so on and gradually getting closer and closer and closer <laughs> sounds like to what me. Well, it sounded like what a marked landing I didn't want to say but you know <laughs> we didn't get that shot on the other hand we got lots of shots nobody had ever seen before so so I'm I'm, I'm satisfied, but could do better. Well, next time, Jeff, just very quickly, will there be a next time? Is there a sequel in the offing? Well, I hope so. Um, certainly, the uh, well, as again, you guys as broadcasters know, one of the things you try and do is you give the, the audience two things. You give them a, you know, an experience of some sort. You tell them a story, or you show them a picture, you put them in a place they couldn't otherwise have been. And if you can um, line that up with, with some new information, something that makes them think again about the way the world works, then you've got the best of both worlds. And what we, we did get here, I think, you know, three and a half million people on average peaking to four million watched this film so clearly we were you know pricking some some piece of, of 
public curiosity that, that people really want answers to. So uh, I, I think we did give them some answers in, in terms of, of safety. You know, we confirmed the brace positions best, wear your seat belt. Further back, it's better. If it's that sort of crash, if the plane crashes tail down, being at the back is not going to help you very much. The big bugbear and the one thing we couldn't do in this test was was fire. And you know, as we know, um, aircraft fires are very rarely survivable um, if you're caught in there and you can't get out of the plane. So I think the, the next thing I'd like to look at, whether it makes a film or not, is up to the broadcasters. But what I'd like to look at is having another go at the NASA test and seeing if we can, because uh, you know, time has moved on, yeah. um, anti-foaming agents in fuel, um, agents that denature the fuel to the point where it's, uh, where it's not, not explosive, but it can still be reprocessed and used to power engines. So what I'd like to do is crash a plane with one wing tank full of normal aviation fuel, one wing tank full full of fuel that's been treated so it shouldn't burst into flames, and just see what happens. Can't wait to see that. And has uh, has, has Michael O'Leary from Ryanair been on yet? Because of course they're unseated. They're on. Un- you know, their planes. You don't get allocated a seat. Has he rung on, rung you to complain that everyone's running to the back of the aircraft? No, no he hasn't. But but funnily enough, there's a, there's a real Irish interest in this. I've I've been on three Irish radio stations in the last two days, and and I get that joke all the time. It's uh, everybody says uh, says the next thing we'll be hearing is Ryanair going to charge you more to sit at the back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, they never miss a trick, do they? But sort of rather unkind of them, really, because uh, again. And what I say to everybody there is that if you're on a, on a modern passenger jet that operates out of a well-regulated aviation industry where the planes get, get maintained properly and so on, you're actually pretty safe. And for all the, the issues that people might have with low-cost airlines and so on, their planes, by and large, do not fall out of the sky. It's a different matter if you're in, I don't know, Mozambique or somewhere, where, well, maybe being unfair to Mozambique, but there are plenty of places in the world where you, where you, you, you think twice about getting on a plane. You wonder if somebody's checked the oil and put petrol in the tanks. Well, Jeff, thanks very much for all that. I, I personally can't wait to see you shoot down a satellite. <laughs> well, I, I have, in principle, permission to do that, but that's, that's, a, that's a really, really big deal to do that one. Listen, so, Jeff, it's fabulous to speak to you, and thanks for an amazing TV show. We, we love watching it, and you'll be pleased to know we picked our seats and we both survived. Oh, so we great. Know something. Yeah. Oh, I'm very pleased. very pleased to hear that, Jeff. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me on. It's a great, uh, great show, and, uh, and uh, I hope we get to do the next one. Yeah, and, and if anyone hasn't seen it, it's on 4OD, 4OD at the moment. Yeah, they can yeah, go to the, still the Channel 4 website yeah, and still yeah. see Good to speak to you. Thanks ever so much. Not at all. My pleasure, guys. Flaps Podcast. So, Jeff was the man with the plan, but what about the man whose job it was to crash the thing? Uh, Flying in a chase plane with a remote control in his hand was US Navy test pilot Chip Shanley. Hi, Chip. Hi, Elliot. How are you? Very well indeed. And uh, can we just say what an amazing bit of flying that was, well, despite the fact he ended up in a terrible crash. (laughs) (laughs) But I suppose that was mission accomplished. That's, That's the main thing, isn't it? Yes, yes, sir. Was that the first plane you've crashed? Uh, actually, second, believe it or not. What was the first? Uh, it was an F-4 Phantom, a QF-4. Um, I got shot down. Oh, that doesn't count then. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's your background, is it? You were, you're a U.S. Navy test pilot. How did you get involved with this crazy project? What did you think when he first uh, put the idea to you, Chip? Well, it, we knew we could do it um, because... Uh, Basically, the core of uh, the Broken Wing team were the guys that used to work on the, the QF-4s out of Point Magoo when we were all in the Navy uh, at VX-30. And so we uh, talked to Barney, our mad scientist, and <laughs> he was convinced it was easy to do. So we said, okay, we'll do it. I love the I, I love the parachuting out of the back of the seven two seven. That was just the coolest thing. That was that was the most Bond esque bit of the program. That 
Yeah, it, and from my vantage point, uh, you couldn't see it, but when Jim Bob came out on Final Approach, he had a big grin. <laughs> no <laughs> surprise. <laughs> were you, uh, did, did, you, did you envy them doing that bit, or were you quite happy to be flying the world's biggest remote-controlled airplane? You, you know, years ago, we, we worked on a similar project, and I actually got to do uh, free fall. Uh, not from a, a 7-2 size aircraft, but uh, I really enjoyed it. But what? It's been 10 years. I don't know if my body could take it anymore. <laughs> do, you, do you know if you hold any kind of record for the remote control bit? Because there can't be many bigger remote control aircrafts. Certainly, yeah, not, certainly not controlled by just a regular remote control. Because that looked like something you bought from the store. Yeah, it actually was. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a tight budget, so we used off-the-shelf actually a Futaba controller just that you get at any hobby shop. And uh, Barney checked it out and said, we are the largest handheld controlled uh, remote aircraft ever. So I think we have that record. So what did you think when they first came to you, the, the, the program makers, and said, we want you to help us crash a plane? Do you think they're those crazy Brits? Uh, you know, we were intrigued. Um we had uh, talked about doing this years ago and uh, something along the same lines. And then uh, uh, Jeff approached us and, and said, well, I think, you know, we can make this happen uh, and we want to instrument it. And uh, I was intrigued by the science, too, because I thought, wow, if we could get that data, that would really uh, go a long way with, you know, future... Uh, construction of aircraft and, and just basic safety design. Yeah, and, and also, as, as we saw on the show, it's, it's not just about crashing it, is it? It's crashing it in a certain way that it doesn't turn into just an unsurvivable fireball. I mean, was it very difficult to crash it so specifically? Well, our biggest concern was fire. Um, and uh, I think you can see in the show that was the scientist major concern right from the start but we never guaranteed no fire <laughs> we, we said we would minimize uh you know the the opportunity for it to burn but uh, we you know we got a little bit lucky there i think because nothing broke um fuel line or whatever and in fact the engines were still turning two of them yeah, they had. To, they didn't have the, the the fire brigade had to put uh, water in, didn't they, to stop the stop the engines in the end? Yeah, they ran for quite a while. The uh, the center engine, engine number two, and they were at a high power setting because on impact, uh, the throttles obviously went full forward, and then uh, so they just sat there running. They build them well, Boeing. They sure do. They uh, <laughs> that airplane. Uh, the old 7-2, I, I think most of the airline pilots, or all of us, have some experience that were on the team in the 7-2, and we sat around a table at the pool one night, and we're going over our profile, and said, look, Jeff says we have to break it. You think this profile is steep enough? And we looked at it, and we decided, no, nope, we better double the altitude. <laughs> we go and that's, that's, we ended up with the 800 feet. You know, and then we went up and tested it, and uh, uh, we got the sink rate that we wanted. It was quite, um, in terms of the, the the crash landing. The reason, the principal reason, there wasn't any fires because you got a very wings level landing, didn't you? It wasn't uh, it wasn't at all skew if. Yes, it, most of the fuel 
especially uh, in the fuel load that we had, was in the wings. So we knew if we could land it flat, that uh, most likely uh, we wouldn't tear open any wings. And so if we had a fuel line sever, that would be a minor fire compared to, you know, a huge conflagration if, if we tore open a wing and atomized that fuel. Well, you managed to do something that NASA couldn't do, Chip, so that's pretty good going, because they, they, theirs turned into a complete fireball when they tried it years ago, didn't they? It did. Uh, unfortunately, uh, if, if you look close at the film, um, what they were trying to do was rip open the wings for a, uh, uh, a fuel re- retardant that was added to basic jet fuel. And uh, the, the 707, which that was actually a 720, that's just a cut down 707, um, it has a, a tendency to, to get into a PIO, uh, pilot-induced oscillation. And it got into that PIO just before it touched down, and so it hit an engine on the wing ripper, and that just sent all that white-hot metal in, into the you know, into the fuel cloud, and it just ignited. And as a, as a pilot, and clearly someone who, who loves aircraft and loves flying, how did you feel about poor old Big Flo and, and condemning her? You know, it was mixed uh, mixed emotion, certainly, uh, because, I mean, we'd been with... I went and pulled Big Flo out of the uh, the hangar. Um, in fact, the, the scenes in the in the show where it's coming out of the hangar were that's in Ardmore, Oklahoma, when uh, we were pushing it out to do the engine run-ups for the very first time, when it was all back together with the engines on it. My son and I went and took a digital camera to capture that. We flew down on our little musketeer years ago, and so we were with her all the way, and it was, she was a great airplane, too. That was the hard part. I mean, we never had any problems with her at all over years of flight test and a lot of sitting waiting for things to take place because of course i mean this was a quite a long project wasn't it it was about four years in the making yes yeah it ended up just shy of four years in fact if you look close at some of the opening scenes where dave and i are on the desert floor you notice my hair was quite a bit browner <laughs> <laughs> it sent you gray hasn't it chip this? Yeah, it has it has Chip, what what was it like on the on the on the morning of the flight, the final day you're going to do this, and the Marchetti was uh, suffering? A, I think it was a fuel pump problem, wasn't it? Yes, uh, it blew a seal, and uh, and there was no indication in the cockpit. Uh, you know, you always try to. Uh, it's always better to be luck, but you you always have to make your own luck. And we decided to bring Ray along, our uh, mechanic, just you know, just in case, and he was standing outside observing the startup and all of a sudden fuel just started gushing out of the air uh engine cowling and uh had that happened later we would have had no indication and it would have been us and the marchetti on the desert floor <laughs> not big flow <laughs> but you uh you, you hopped into the reliable old uh 337 and that just about did the job because it was quite underpowered wasn't it to keep up with flow yeah it we did the test in March, and we used the 337, again, very tight budget. And, yeah, we looked at the numbers, the performance numbers, and said, oh, yeah, we can do this. But, and we did get the test done, and it was done adequately. And, but 
closing on the uh, 727 and, and getting together was really hard. And then just trying to hang in place. We were right at the max performance of the 337. Dave was actually overhead the, the, the dry lake bed in the 337 with Quentin. And when he heard us having engine troubles, he turned around. Cause he, uh, they were a backup chase, airborne backup chase. And he turned around and came back. And uh, then we jumped in his airplane. That's, that's why uh, Dave Kennedy ended up in the tower. So after four years of all this, he didn't even get to watch. I felt, felt <laughs> terrible taking his airplane. So what do your colleagues at American Airlines think? <laughs> uh, you know, to be honest, I, I was curious how uh, they would react. And uh, I, I think anything that goes forward in safety, certainly a, an airline is all for. And mm. uh, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from both the company and the, uh, uh, the pilots' union. Well, as a pilot, it must be a little bit worrying, though, for, from a you know a commercial jet point of view, because the cockpit really took it, didn't it? It got ripped off, and and that was one of the most unsurvivable bits. Yes, yeah, we we have a saying, uh, you know, when people ask uh, the uh, the passengers who are nervous about flying, we always say, "Hey, we're the first ones to the accident." So, <laughs> don't worry, we'll be careful. Yeah, no, that's that is a good point. And were you happy with your with your crash? Because I mean, you you were a bit short of the runway, weren't you? But but you know, I suppose all things being considered, it, you got the job done. Yeah, we had a, uh, and again, it comes back to our budget. We had a uh, a crash zone, nine thousand by five hundred feet. We actually hit in the middle of that, um, but due to they couldn't afford to put cameras at full length. And uh, they got placed at the far end um, of the runway was originally supposed to be 6,000 feet. It ended up 3,000 feet. So with the Marchetti, we had planned at 140 knots uh, to adjust and, and move us further downrange so we could get... They had uh, high-speed cameras set up, and we were going to slide into their range. Uh, as it turns out, I... The aircraft didn't slide very far, so I don't know if we'd have made it in range anyway. But uh, once the Marchetti went down, and we had to then slow, big flow down to 122 knots, I mean, we knew the accuracy was out the window. But our priorities had always, we had three priorities. Number one was safety, because I mean, we literally had family and friends on the team. So we always uh, wanted to get everybody home, the same condition they came down. And then number two was getting the science. We had to get the science. And to get the science, we needed to hit the profile and not catch on fire. And then number three, so we'll get as much of it as we can on film. But that's the third priority. You, you mentioned keeping the family safe. Uh, poor old Big Flo. Was that named after your your mother, was it? My grandmother. Your grandmother. Well, poor old, poor old Big Flo wasn't terribly safe. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, uh, she didn't fare so well. <laughs> but then I suppose, as the old saying goes, isn't it... Um, any landing that you can walk away from is a good landing. And you, you walked away from this, but, I mean, you can't reuse the plane, so I suppose that's not so good, is it? Yeah, that means it's not a great landing. <laughs> you don't get to log it in your logbook, do you, but, with, <laughs> but, but without, without, yeah. without a, an arrival airport? Uh, you know, I have not logged it because I really don't know how to log it. Well, yeah, because you, you, <laughs> you can log it. You were flying it, weren't you? Yeah, I, and in the Navy, we just never logged it. 
and uh, if if you dropped one by accident, it didn't count against your accident record. So uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a you know that fuzzy area that you know you just shrug your shoulders and go, well, it's a drone, it's not an airplane. So. Well, it was you know it was a great drone. We love big flow. We loved your flying. It was a great it was a great TV show. And uh, as you said, you know ho- hopefully we'll we'll all learn something from it. But uh, it, it was great flying, Chip, and good to speak to you. Well, it's great speaking to you, Elliot, Mark, and I, I appreciate uh, the interview. Flaps Podcast is an award-winning aviation show. To find it online, go to flapspodcast.com. <laughs>